I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat. I'm Bobby Palmer. She's Pandora Sykes. Hello, it is she. And every episode, we each bring a book to chat about. And if you're new here, there is only one rule. The books have to be more than two years old. First up, we have to discuss the fact that Armistead Morpin, Book Chat alumnus from our very first episode, has just announced another Tales of the City book, which will be his 10th. <laughs> the plot is about Mona running a B&B in an English country manner, so it's as wacky as, as I think we'd expect. I wonder why he decided to do another one now. Wonderful end at 10. Nice round number. This is also our tenth episode. It sounded like you already knew that with that with that lovely lead in Pandora. Did you know? I did not. I didn't actually cue you up, tee you up. Thank God for you. You are the organization behind this operation. And you are too kind. Google tells me that the tenth anniversary is the tin anniversary. And speaking of our very first episode, we also read Tin Man by Sarah Winman. So, you know, not <laughs> not to get all metaphysical, but things really are coming full circle. I think you can find a link. If you really want to find a link, I think you can always find one. Pandora, what are you reading right now? Well, I just read First Love by Gwendolyn Riley. Did you ever read that? No, I I did hear good things about My Phantoms. Oh, I haven't read that one. This one I came across, I think someone posted an Instagram story, a very good cover, came out in 2017, and I think it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. It is quite a short book about a toxic relationship and it's very, I'm trying to think like the best, but it's, I think someone put it well when they said it was like the most perfect horrid book. It is horrid. It's it's really well written, but it's horrid. (laughs) That sounds like Fever Dream, which we've discussed before. Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. That is the perfect, that's very short and it's a horrid little book. Uh (laughs) (laughs) What are you reading right now? Any horrid little books? No, I'm reading a a not hot, well, a not horrid long book, but I say reading, we've never talked about audiobooks on this podcast. I'm a big audiobook guy. I'm also a big believer that it does count as reading. It's very controversial, this topic, isn't it? I think they are different ways of reading, but I don't think one's better than the other. That's my diplomatic answer. That's a good diplomatic answer. Do you you listen to audiobooks? I have in my whole adult life listened to half of one empire of pain that's it weirdly i have also listened to empire of pain on audio i loved it because i love it when a journalist reads out their own work and and they sort of know Mm. when to bring all the drama (laughs) it sounds like you're not not an audible girl my brain just wanders too easily it's why i don't actually listen to podcasts really unless i'm driving so weirdly my taste in audiobooks is, is like the total opposite of my taste in physical books so as you well know I prefer my books to be weird and and metaphorical, often quite short. But with audiobooks, I like them very factual. I like them often historical, and I I definitely like them to be very, very long because I like something that can keep me gripped when when I'm driving or when I walk the dog or when I'm cooking. All that is a very long-winded way of saying that I've just started the 30-hour-long version of the Wolf Hall trilogy by Hilary Mantel. God, who um, narrates that? It's Dan Stevens actually. And he does it really well. He does it really well, apart from the fact that his Henry VIII sounds a bit like Matt Berry. So he sort of comes into a room and is like, hello, everyone in the court. (laughs) (laughs) I really went for it. (laughs) You did. I think that's the most um, vital you've been on this podcast. Um, That length, though, reminds me of when I did try and be an audible girl and I downloaded a brief history of everything, whatever it's called, with my first free audible credit. And when it downloaded, I saw that it was 19 hours and I never even opened it. I did do the uh, Peter Capaldi version of Watership Down last Christmas and that was 17 hours. Oh. This this Wolf Hall one is a new frontier and I, I think it's sort of just gearing me up for my, my audiobook White Whale, which is 
the 60-hour version of War and Peace, in which Tandiwe Newton plays every single character. Sorry, what? She recorded 60 hours of audio herself? Yes, she did. And thankfully not in a Russian accent. When was this? It was only two years ago. It was quite a big release at the time. I, you know, it's big in every big in every manner. Flipping heck. That is a white whale indeed. This is your necessary spoiler warning, but we're actually thinking of doing less spoilers going forward. Bobby, Inbox King, did we have any feedback on whether that was preferred? Consensus seems to be less spoilers. Noted. Also, we should do a little content warning, though we won't be going into too much detail. In our conversation around the bluest eye, we will be talking a bit about sexual abuse. So if you want to avoid that bit, it's second up so you can just dip out during the ad break in the middle. So Pandora, you go first. What's your book this month? Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. By J.D. Bloom. Speaking of vital, that was, yeah, that was, that was nice. Bravo. A bona fide, much-loved classic, right? Give me, give me the lowdown. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, was written in 1970 by the quote-unquote poet laureate, lo- Larry, laureate, how do you say that? Uh, laureate. Laureate. <laughs> Such a weird word. By the poet laureate of puberty, as the Atlantic so brilliantly dubbed her, Judy Bloom. Now, I imagine many of our female listeners are getting a veritable bloom in their heart at the mention of her name because she was such a stalwart for the millennial preteen slash teen. The novelist Emily Barr pointed out that at the time of reading this, lots of girls like me were reading or just sort of graduating out of Enid Blyton and Daryl Rivers and the rest of the Mallory Towers girls never got periods. So Judy Bloom was a real educator in every sense, but in this really light way. I think I read someone say, you know, she's never preachy and I agree with that. I'm sure many of you listening are also haunted by Ralph. Do I want to know who Ralph is? Ralph was the name a boy called Michael gave his penis in Judy Bloom's book Forever, which is about a girl and a boy losing their virginity. You haven't got anything to say back to that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember where I was when I was reading that and everything, and I have to say Ralph Still makes me slightly recoil. Anyway, Judy Bloom, now 85, has sold over 90 million books. Do you think that's one of the most selling in the world? It's Must be up there be up with there. who else would be Dan Brown. JK Rowling's obviously going to be really big. Dan Brown, JK Rowling. The Bible. Snore the Bible. Uh not snore the Bible, <laughs> but like snore to you for suggesting the Bible. Um anyway, this is a whole other podcast, but I'm interested to know who are the, the top ten. But Bobby, was she remotely seminal for the male teenager? Had you ever read any of her? I presume you've heard of her? Yes, I've heard of her. No, I've never read her. I have heard of the book. It definitely was not on the required reading list for a teenage boy. <laughs> what was on the required teenage list? Adrian Moll. Uh, yeah. Mull and I Adrian Mull. I've read a lot of Stephen <laughs> King as a teenager, which is quite weird in hindsight. Oh my God, Carrie. Yeah, <laughs> The Shining and stuff like that. So I think, if, you know, if, if I'm ever like creepy and lurking in the shadows, that's why. I don't think there is really a male equivalent to this book. I, 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 I find it, interesting as well that she she was massive over here because i've always thought of her and of this book as a as an american phenomenon and and maybe thought that our, like our version of this would be like tracy beaker or something like that yeah i think jacqueline wilson was bigger when i was younger i think probably the male equivalent skew older so adrian mole and catcher in the rye i think it's that kind of age-old thing of oh nothing to talk about for boys boys are fine they'll just punch each other and you know yeah. on on they yes, go they although judy bloom did actually write a version of are you there god it's me margaret not exactly the same but sort of what she saw as the companion piece for boys can't remember what it's called which suggests that yeah it wasn't nearly so popular this was the most popular of her books so it's about margaret an almost 12 year old girl who moves from new york to new jersey with her mother and her father and she joins a girl gang at her new school called the preteen sensations love that the pts's and she talks to a non-secular god about how much she wants her period and have boobs it's a very charming gentle book and it's still censored in some states if you can believe it i genuinely cannot believe that (laughs) 
So Judy Bloom said at the time her own kids' school banned it because it talked about menstruation. And a school in Florida even removed it from their library this year. Flipping Ron DeSantis. It's ridiculous. That is really interesting and really surprising because it means both the books we're talking about today are American books, which have been and still are banned all across America. Because nothing screams freedom like banning books. Yeah, freedom of speech, all about banning books, about periods. Was it weird for you reading a book about a preteen who wants her period? I was trying to wonder what it was like from a admittedly very progressive adult male perspective. Thank you for clarifying that I am progressive. It was illuminating uh, and and funny and and sweet. I I think, I imagine the reception from a man even like, 15, 20 years ago would be quite different because I, I, I think people talk about this stuff a lot more now. It's a lot more out in the open. Yeah. As much as I say all that, I, I definitely didn't feel like I, a 30-something British man, was quite the intended audience. <laughs> a lot of it went over my head. I couldn't really identify with the emotions. You know, I've, ne- I've never had my first bra fitted, for example. I never had my first bra fitted. Oh, fair enough. Well, we're similar then. Um, and nothing really happens in the book uh, you know i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna sit here slating a book which yeah. is written for 12 year old girls because that'd be like me bullying a bunch of schoolgirls. but i i really appreciated it as a book that is not written for me yeah it's a really cute book it's a solid ya book i skipped through it and the tone is set i think from the first page we moved on the tuesday before labor day i knew what the weather was like the second i got up I knew because I caught my mother sniffing under her arms. She always does that when it's hot and humid to make sure her deodorant's working. I don't use deodorant yet. I don't think people start to smell bad until they're at least 12. So I've still got a few months to go. And to be honest, that kind of confessional candid tone, I think has been really influential in like YA content generally, not just literature, because if you watch all those kind of shows, like Never Have I Ever and The Summer I Turn Pretty and all, or the flying underpants or whatever that one was called basically that kind of whole idea of a teenager talking i mean margaret's talking to god but kind of talking to the screen or writing in their diary that is that's a really familiar tone i think now yeah you could almost imagine it as like a voiceover on a on a netflix show although of course god nowadays to teenagers is tiktok anyway i loved how they call themselves the preteen sensations or the PTSs. <laughs> me too. I thought it was, I th- every time they they said that word, it made me smile. I love how much Playboy was clearly an, like an open thing in the 70s. Margaret talks about how her dad gets Playboy. To me, that would be seriously gross, finding my dad's dirty magazines, but it sounds very accepted then. So I can only imagine that Playboy was much less graphic. This was the seventies, Pandora. It was a it was a freer time. Lots of hairy chests and avocado bathrooms. Or they're probably less hairy chests in Playboy, actually. The book doesn't feel very seventies though, which I, I think surprised me. I expected it to feel like a No. Not like a historical book, because it's not that long ago, but I expected it to feel like a period piece. And it isn't. And I think that's probably why it's still so celebrated. I'd love to know if teenage girls read it to the same extent now the cover of my edition is laid out like a text conversation with are you there god blank it's me margaret in two speech bubbles as if she's sort of texting god Mm. which is a bit weird but clearly an attempt to make it appeal to those hip young audiences i'm making myself sound so old i think because so i've had a look i was just having a look inside when you were saying that so the thing that really dates us is that she has her hair done in like big rollers and she has a cream rinse and she talks about wearing her velvet which is nylon nylon see these are all these are all things that would have just flown totally over my head i was just like that's what girls do (laughs) but there's nothing about what they ate there's no like and then we had pineapple on sticks and there's nothing about what films they read what books they read it's very very like myopic it's literally just margaret (laughs) margaret really wants her period it's still so true of teenage girlhood Margaret speaks to Nancy every night on the phone and her dad is like, how can you have stuff to talk to her about when you're at school together all day? And I just thought, teenage girls. I could still do that, to be honest, if I had the time. Um, Some of it does feel out of date tonally, like when Gretchen's mum tells her that now she has got her period, she has to be careful what she eats because she's gained a lot of weight that summer. But it's very in keeping with that whole Jane Fonda cardio 
Weight Watchers Cottage Cheese Time, 1970. Also, this broke my... Actually, I don't know if Weight Watchers was out in 1970. TBD. And also, this broke my heart. The slut-shaming of a girl named Laura Danker, who all the preteen sensations assume is a slut because she developed boobs at a young age. And that totally, totally happened when I was younger. Girls who were more developed were definitely assumed to be more sexual. And that's horrendous. I, I really, really hope that's not the case anymore i'm i'm not sure i'd have to canvas to find out you know there's a you notice there's a nancy wheeler do you watch stranger things one of the main characters is called nancy wheeler anyway yeah yeah uh, i and i did try to google it and apparently it's it's i guess a coincidence maybe yeah the laura danker stuff i found i found quite moving and i think it is intentional because they they're very I think Margaret becomes very aware of the fact that they've been unfairly bullying her, I guess, for the fact that she's gone through puberty early and that she's tall and that she's got boobs. And there's this quite touching scene later on where where Laura Danker confronts her and her what Margaret thought was the case isn't the case. And and you actually feel really sorry for Laura and and Margaret feels really embarrassed. And I think it it was quite moving. She's not hugely compassionate though, is she, Margaret? No, she sort of then goes like, I'm going to, carry on with my life and not give a shit but um and then when nancy lies about getting her period she's like oh don't worry i guess she must really want it and then she's like i'm never trusting her again yeah. <laughs> nancy sucks though nancy nancy isn't great i mean I, yeah. i'm just saying that about like an 11 year old girl but she, i wouldn't be friends with her she's much greater in the film actually she's played really well in the film it's really it is really funny though i totally give it to my daughter to read and as i said it has just been made turned into a film starring rachel mcadam as margaret's mom and kathy bates as her grandmother who's amazing as her kind of very sort of claustrophobic grandmother they basically moved to new jersey to escape her grandmother the film sticks pretty closely to the book's plot even dialogue But what really interested me, it's fine, it's sweet, the film, but it really interested me that it focuses a lot more on Margaret's mum than the book does. In the book, she's barely sketched out as a character. In the film, she's a woman connecting with her, reconnecting with her artist self. She's a woman estranged from her anti-Semitic parents. Like, that's really quite heartbreaking, that stuff. Uh, She's a woman still hot for her husband. There's this sort of slightly weird saucy bit when Margaret's dad cuts himself on the lawnmower and it's lovely but it does sort of do the book a bit of a disservice because it's not meant to be about the parents at all this is a book seen totally through Margaret's eyes because she is a myopic preteen girl and it's literally just about her and her budding chest yeah it's not called are you there god it's me Margaret's mum is it Pandora (laughs) no it's not called that the book actually reminded me of of another film called Eighth Grade, which is this... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such a brilliant depiction of, of a young teenage girl. It's like heartwarming, but also excruciating. It's a more modern film, so she has has the same like awkward birthday party invites and stuff, but she also does like YouTube videos that no one watches, and I'm, I'm squirming just thinking about it, but it's it's so sweet. Is that um, Olivia Wilde's film? Is that her first no, film? No, that's Booksmart, which is great. Um, oh uh, yeah, I've seen Booksmart. Bo Burnham directed it, um, and they came out at really similar yes. times. And they're they're quite they're sort of tonally similar, but um, Eighth Grade is way more cringe. <laughs> I one thing I'm interested about in the book. Important question: The girls do this exercise to try and make their boobs grow, where they extend their arms and they chant, "We must, we must, we must increase our bust." Is that a real thing that girls do as teenagers? Yeah. Definitely, definitely did it when we were younger. I think probably before teenagers. I think Judy Bloom invented that ditty. The internet suggests that she invented that rhyme, which is, I mean, I'd have that on my gravestone. That's like the the biggest achievement. Uh, you know, 90 million copies is nothing compared to that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm, I really felt like I am, I feel like I am still learning so much and I, I learned so much from this from this book and just in time for having a daughter of your own god help me as margaret would say (laughs) what's your what's your favorite bit the private lady company made me laugh margaret hates being sold to so she refuses to buy sanitary towels by the company that's been paid to come in and teach them about their periods uh the private lady company and instead she opts for teenage 
softies. I do love all the brand names. That feels very suburban America at a very specific time. Like, you know, and they had stuff like Cheez-Its and or whatever they were called. The Grow Bra without a W, for example. That's much more common in the UK now, but it used to be such an American thing in the late... Up until the late 90s, I'd say that the kind of early noughties is when we started getting much more Americanized, like linguistically and culturally. But back then, this was just very much an American thing. And I enjoyed that. Private Lady is so great. That that sounds like something from an Armistead Morpin book. <laughs> Speaking about, you know, American suburbia and the time, I, I was actually surprised how religious this book is. And I think I think reading it as a Brit, in a, I, I feel like the UK is a much more secular society than than the US. So I found it, for all its progressiveness and its positive sexuality, it was quite traditional in its approach to religion in whether Margaret wants to be Christian or Jewish and that all of her little addresses to God, I expected them to be funnier, but they're actually quite sincere and pious. They're all about like finding, you know, some of them are about growing her boobs or getting her period, but a lot of them are about like finding faith and and going to church and, and what God she should believe in. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if it's because the UK is more secular, if that's because in America at that time was going through yeah. something of a change. I think it's it's probably a, a combination of the two, but I'd be interested if it if it reads that way. You know, if Americans would pick up on that or if it, it would feel more normal, I guess. Would would you have changed anything about this book? No, it's really cute. Philip Leroy is a bit of a jerk. Maybe he should get some comeuppance. <laughs> He's no Moose Freed, is he? Moose Freed sounds like someone out of uh, close range. Yeah, really, there is nothing more middle American than fancying the boy who mows your lawn yes. and the boy who mows your lawn being called Moose Freed. <laughs> Do you think this book's classic, Judy Bloom? I'd have to reread Forever and Deanie, which is another famous one by her about a dancer who gets scoliosis and has to wear a brace. But off the top of my head, absolutely. And as I said earlier, she did write a teenage coming of age one or a preteen coming of age one for boys too. Um, but... Yeah, I haven't read that one. I should read that one. It might tell me why my um why my voice has dropped. <laughs> <laughs> will, will you? It's a bit of a weird question, actually. Will you be reading more Judy Bloom? I feel like we, you know we've both sort of passed the past the age, the, the demographic, the Judy Bloom. Yeah, the Judy Bloom apex. But will you be reading more? I think I'll probably wait till my daughter hits nine or ten, and then we can read them again together. I feel like you won't be reading more. Not in a rush, but. Yeah, I, that is a lovely idea, you know, about reading with your daughter. And I, I don't want to be the sort of a squeamish dad. So it's good to get a head start on this stuff. And I'd, I'd like to read books like this with my daughter too. Although my daughter, no doubt, will find that absolutely horrifying as an idea. So that's probably a job for mum. I'd love to visit Judy Bloom's store, Books and Books, in Key West. Like Anne Patchett, she actually works in the store despite being 85. Books and books might have been a better better name for this podcast. Newsletter. <laughs> so, no, you, yeah, your newsletter, you should have named it something different. No, it would have been a better name for that. Book, book and book would be a good name for this podcast because we each bring a book. Anyway, very cool to be an author and own a bookshop. Something to aspire to, although I mine will probably be somewhere much less glamorous than Key West. I can so see you having a bookshop. I can actually visualise you in 30 years extremely clearly, Bobby. Don't know how to take that because I can't see the visual. I hope it's a nice one. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bobby, tell me about your book. So my choice today is another seminal book from the exact same year, 1970, and that is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Pandora, have you read any Toni Morrison before? I've read Beloved and that's it. I really don't know why I haven't read any other Toni Morrison. It's shameful, actually. I can't understand why none of it was on my GCSE, A-level 
or undergraduate syllabus. That's also shameful. Well, even more shameful is the fact that I've never read any Toni Morrison and this book was my first. I chose it because I have always wanted to read her. And though I think the more natural starting point would have been Beloved because it's, you know, it's her most famous one. And because on the surface, it's probably a bit more me. There's a ghost in it. This felt like such a good comparison to Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, that we couldn't pass it up. So even though this book isn't set at the time, it's another, you know, book in the 1970s. It's about a girl on the cusp of puberty. It's It's got those parallels, but they just couldn't be more different. I agree. It was really surprising to be reading them in conjunction to one another because aside from the fact that they were both published in 1970 by very famous authors, I really didn't think we'd been finding any parallels and both have that real hook of being about menstruation. And in one book, it's this massive disaster and inconvenience. And in another book, you know, in a sort of cosseted 70s privileged white middle America, it's something to to yearn for. And I mean, period poverty is a real thing for a young woman in depression era America and still now. And of course, it plays a vital role in this book because as we learn on the very first page, Pekala, the 12-year-old protagonist, is carrying her father's child. Yeah, and I think that's an insight into, you know, just how different this book is. The Bluest Eye is Toni Morrison's first novel. It takes place in Lorraine, Ohio. It's set in the 1940s and it's a book about beauty and racism and how they intersect and how that same racism ruins families and communities and trickles down from generation to generation. Morrison said she also wrote it as a response to other black literature at the time, which was very revolutionary, aggressively positive, mostly written by men with slogans like black is beautiful. This novel explores the flip side of that, which is how black women are made to feel ugly. And that manifests in the main character, Pekala, who wants nothing more than blue eyes like a white child, and that's where the title comes from. So Pekla lives in poverty. She's teased, she's bullied, she's beaten down, even by some of the girls who are supposedly her friends, like Claudia and Frida, who are, who are kind. If there's a, a point of view of the book, it's them. Pekla's parents don't have it any easier. Her mother, Pauline, is a servant for a wealthy white family and kind of gives over her, gives over her whole being to that. And then Pekla's father, Cholly, is an abusive violent alcoholic who we also find out has been hugely mistreated by white people in his past from that first page you you, you know where it's going but he he takes that out on Peckler in the most horrible possible way the book is really dark and it is often a really tough read but it never feels gratuitous and I think that is quite an impressive feat so in my copy both the forward and the afterward share some of the same paragraphs they've sort of been like This has been slightly plagiarised, but she says basically that the origin of this story lies in a conversation she had with a childhood friend who they just started school and the friend said that she wanted blue eyes. And Toni Morrison says she pretended to be sympathetic, but inside she was absolutely furious. She said, who made her feel that it was better to be a freak, so a girl with very dark skin and blue eyes, than what she was? Who had looked at her and found her so wanting, so small a weight on the beauty scale? And she says, this novel pecks away at the gaze that condemned her. It's a reclamation of racial beauty, she says. It stirred her thoughts and made her think about the necessity for the claim. Anyway, the the afterward and the forward actually like incredibly interesting. I'd really, really suggest... Well, reading them both. I also think that this is a book about senses. There is so much about what things taste like, what they feel like. It's a book about really seeing and feeling the world for what it is. You know, so very near the beginning, Mr. Henry arrives on a Saturday night. We smelled him. He smelled wonderful, like trees and lemon vanishing cream and new Nile hair oil and flecks of sensen. You know, that's established really near the beginning. We're always told what people smell like. And there's this great bit where Claudia speaks about what she wants for Christmas. And everyone assumes that she wants a thing. And actually, she says she wants an experience. She wants to sit on the low stool in Big Mama's kitchen with her lap full of lilacs, listening to her father play his violin for the first time. And she said, and since it would be good to have all of my senses engaged, the taste of a peach perhaps afterwards. I think that that sensual description is very, it makes it very believable that this is a book from the point of view of children. And I think in in different ways, both this and, and the Judy Bloom book really feel like kids telling you the way they see the world as i said earlier another similarity between these two books is they've both been banned and this book has been banned time and time and time again in the last 50 years 
from high schools, from libraries all across America. The most often reason cited is, you know, fairly obviously the, the graphic sexual content, but also, and and I quote, an underlying socialist communist agenda. Did you find that this book had an underlying socialist communist agenda, Pandora? Um... Yeah, um, me too. The The funny thing is, before I read this book, and and it's a book that comes with a lot of a lot of baggage because it's such a phenomenon. I'd been told that this was a grim book. You know, this was a a book that would make me feel sad, and I I, I kind of knew what it was about before I started reading it, and I expected to dislike it for that reason because I I really don't like what would now be described as misery porn. Uh, and I'm not naming any particular books, but you can probably guess a couple of the ones I'm talking. About. A little life. I didn't say it, but this is not that. This is this is a. A sad book and a dark book, but it's also an incredible, beautiful, powerful, and really affecting book. I think I can't not see it in the context of her own nonfiction writing in the afterward, in in the forward, in what she's written about it, in the interviews she's given where she has, she's so, there's something incredibly charismatic about the way she talks. She's so considered. She's got this like incredibly thoughtful gentle but powerful voice anyway i can't really put it into i can only see it in the context of like everything about tony morrison i was noodling around the internet looking for interviews she'd done about the book and i found a couple of really good filmed ones and there's one from 1976 where she writes that she wrote the book for people like her but i knew that i wanted to read about people like me people who were black and were young and had lived in the Midwest, and nobody wrote about them. And w- whenever they did, they were never center stage in a text. Mm. They were always uh, toys, uh, background, scenery. It took her five years to write The Bluest Eye, she said, and she started it when she was really lonely. She was 30, she'd just moved, she had young children, and she was newly divorced. It reflected, she said, the emotional chaos of that time. I think that really comes across. It is a really emotional work of art. It feels it feels like she poured a lot into it. Yeah, well, she says that she's not a novelist. She's a writer. She says a novelist, their job is to write books. I think of myself as a writer because I only write a book when I can, can't, cannot, cannot not. Um, I love her too on critical reviews. I mean, there are books all over the world that I loathe and I don't want anybody to tell me I can't loathe them, even if I admire some other works they do. I don't, that's not the point. The point is I like I like a little careful respect and thoughtfulness. I don't like a bad review that's badly written. Now that's insulting to me. And insulted because it wasn't a careful consideration, didn't try hard enough to understand what you were trying to get at in this book. It was like 11th grade student who turns in a review of a book, a book report, and says, uh, I hated this book. It's not as good as something else. And what you do, if you're the 11th grade English teacher, you just give it back to them. And so you have to be better at explaining your reasons than this. That's what I thought about that. I think you can definitely tell in this book that she was she was trying to do something new, something that, that hadn't been done before because it's so formally inventive. When we discussed When I Hit You a few months back, we talked about how Mina Kandasami cycles through a lot of different styles and genres to explore abuse and this does the same with with cycles of abuse and with the perpetuation of, of misery in a racist society. So you've got some chapters in the first person, some are whole narratives set in the past. They switch rapidly between voices. There's this amazing tract at the end, which is this imagined narrative between two versions of Pecola all happening within her own head. And the entire book is framed quite famously by this extract from Dick and Jane, which is a American children's book about happy white children. That extract kicks off the whole novel. And this is just a little bit of it, just to give you a, an insight into the kind of thing it says. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? So that's just a kid's book. And I imagine a kid's book that was very familiar to a lot of people reading it at the time. But then the way she uses that extract, she she fragments it throughout the whole book in these rapid fire 
unnerving chapter headings without punctuation, all in capitals. So, you know, one of the chapters, the chapter heading, and this is all in capitals, is sort of better if you see it written down, but see father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile, smile. It's like really haunting, really quite creepy. And it, it creates this really powerful comparison between the two Americas, the the suburban, idyllic, middle-class white America of Dick and Jane, or, you know, of, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret? And this America, the brutal, racist America in which these these destitute black families live. And Toni Morrison actually said, I can't remember where I where I saw her say this, but the, the, the reason for the, like, the lack of punctuation and the, and the, the sort of off-kilter version of that, her interpretation of Dick and Jane is that you have, like, the classic Dick and Jane, which is the put-together white America, and then the fractured version, which is this black America. Morrison also said that she wrote this book essentially because young black girls were never written about, which I, I think is a sign of just how how much it was doing something new at the time. That is such useful context where you talk about Dick and Jane. I actually didn't know it was from Dick and Jane. I think this really suggests to me... So something that Zadie Smith said on... Annie Max Changes podcast. You'll really enjoy that interview, by the way, Bobby. I think it came out last week. But she says how, basically, why is it so weird to read a book twice? If you say to someone, read a book twice, they'd be like, what? Whereas, you know, you actually have to listen to a song loads of times sometimes to like it, to get what it's trying to do. And this is a book, I think, which I needed to read twice because I really didn't appreciate the simplicity almost that sort of eerie formulaicness of Dick and Jane, that cohesive narrative where everything's really straightforward and how that emphasises this fractured narrative of this these young black girls living in poverty. You know, I don't think I really appreciated it fully until stylistically, the, the story I fully appreciated, but stylistically I think it needed another... Read. I mean, in her forward, which reads quite like an academic tract, which makes sense. She was an academic and a professor as well as a writer. She says, I focus, therefore, on how something as grotesque as the demonization of an entire race could take root inside the most delicate member of society, a child, the most vulnerable member, a female. So she is writing about young black girls, but she's actually she's actually sort of funneling a hell of a lot through Pecola. It's not just a story about young black girls. It's about a sort of a whole, a history, a history of racism, if that doesn't sound too ambitious, but it is an ambitious book. To poodle back to what you just said, I couldn't agree more than with you that the subject matter is grim, grim, grim. But there is a levity in the book, not like Demon Copperhead because it's not as funny, but sort of like Demon Copperhead because it's super lyrical and it distills so much through its central characters. And it does read like poetry almost. Toni Morrison's won both a Pulitzer and the Nobel, the first African-American woman to win a Nobel for literature. And I am not surprised. And you know from the off that this is a really serious book. I mean, the first sort of italicised semi-opener said, we thought at the time that it was because Pecola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. And you're like, oh my God, this is a serious book. And then you get another opener, which is just that beautifully written sentence. Nuns go by as quiet as lust and drunken men and sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. That could be a poem. But it is a serious book. It's beautiful and it isn't hard to read, but it's a very serious book on sentence level, subject matter, politics, all of it. And I can see how this changed literature. I can see how this influenced so much of what we read today. How many books probably wouldn't exist without it? Margaret Atwood, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Salman Rushdie have all said how she influenced them. Uh, Salman Rushdie's words on her I particularly loved Toni Morrison led and we followed and she showed us the beauty of language so I can see how seminal it was and I just feel so regretful that I didn't read this earlier it's a staggering piece of work and I actually felt reading it like I did reading August Town that it condenses so much so beautifully it's really interesting you say that because that specifically that line about the the nuns like lust and the the sober eyes and I underlined that and I, I thought this could be a line from August Town. They both have that really amazing way of just having 
not having a spare word, but also having the occasional sentence of description where you just go, wow. You know, it sounds like that that line about the the guns in the bags that are, that we talked about last time. Yes. Just unfurls. Well, maybe she influenced him. I think there can be something quite trite about writing through the seasons, which is obviously the format of this book. You know, God bless Notting Hill, a film I love, with the sort of leaves turning brown and then walking into snow. But... I think Morrison folds in the environment so well here because everything sort of influences and feeds into one another. You know, the abuse is part of the cold and the cold is part of the racism. And of course, she writes about the weather just as beautifully, describing the winter as a hateful knot that nothing could loosen. Obviously, the central act of violence is the part of the book that sticks out the most. It's the most known thing about the book. But what also really got me was when we see that Pauline looks after the white child in a way that she never has her own children. That the more she scrubbed that beautiful house and ironed the little girl's pink dress and cuddled her and soothed her, the more she let her own children go dirty and hungry and she beat them. Yeah, there is such a beautiful bit of writing around that where it says more and more she neglected her house, her children, her man. They were like the afterthoughts one has just before sleep, the early morning and late evening edges of her day, the dark edges that made the daily life with the fishers lighter, more delicate, more lovely. That's like exactly the sort of passage we were just talking about. I mean, Morrison, I think there is really showing the secret life of servants, but it's more like this is what it takes from a woman to give that much. This is the fallout from her servitude and her loyalty is her entire family. What was your favourite bit? I think my favourite thing about it is that you can't really choose a favourite bit because like you said, it reads like one long poem or the parts. I feel like to extract one bit would take away from the whole. And I don't know why I actually expected something really progressive, really brilliant and inventive in content but fairly conventional in form before I started reading it. And it's the inventiveness of the book that's my favourite thing about it. The the Dick and Jane stuff, the different voices, the way that every page it could just totally shift on its axis and change the way you're reading it. I really, really like it when a book does that. One of the things I find most fascinating about this book, and she writes about it in her afterward, was how poorly received it was at the time. She writes, and this was written from Princeton where she taught in 1993, with very few exceptions, the initial publication of The Bluest Eye was like Pecola's life, dismissed, trivialised, misread. And it has taken 25 years to gain for her the respectful publication this edition is. Yeah, the response was very muted at the time. It, It sort of flew under the radar. And when it did get reviews, a lot of them were quite critical. I think maybe only as she published more books and became more of a phenomenon did it start to be appreciated in the way it deserves to be. Part of what appears to be criticised is the form, so the thing that you love. Writing for the New York Times, Haskell Frankel argued that the novel's structure blunted the emotional impact of Peckler's mental breakdown. And Morrison herself later agreed with that, noting that her choice to, quote-unquote, break the narrative into parts that had to be reassembled by the reader seemed to me a good idea, but the execution of which does not satisfy me now. Besides, it didn't work. Many readers remain touched, but not moved. What's the difference between being touched and moved? I don't know. I I, I would say I was moved. I'm, you know, I don't want to disagree with Toni Morrison. She's going to win an argument about her own book. But I I love the form of it. I love the, the, the style of it and the way it breaks itself apart. I think that's my favourite thing about it. Haskell Frankel, fun name that, also says that Peckler plays a secondary role Um, in her sort of her own mistreatment until she zoomed in on quickly near the end. And that I do agree with. It doesn't really feel like her book, does it? Even though it's about the bluest eye, which is something she says, it starts with her, it ends with her. But we don't really learn much about her. We learn more about the other two girls. But then again, with with so much of that stuff, you could argue that that's the point. She doesn't really get her own agency. She's just trampled on by everyone else. Yeah, it's that tricky thing, isn't it? Between give her a voice and, but I'm showing that she had no voice. Something I do find interesting is that both the New York Times and the New Yorker comment on how her poetic prose could be distracting. And that's another thing we both love. You know, that's something that contemporary authors and poets like Max Porter and Ocean Vong are so commended for now in their novels. Do you think it just wasn't in vogue then? And if that's the case, that's 
fascinating to me. Yeah, I actually think so. I think it I think it just shows how much she was ahead of her time. And I find those reviews incredibly incredibly snooty and 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 sort of stuffy old critics in in suits and ties who weren't prepared to read something inventive although i guess they're nowhere near as savage as the ones of uh wuthering heights when that came out there's nothing more withering than wuthering none of them are written by her own sister <laughs> a more contemporary to us review i found interesting was from oprah winfrey and i think it's it's interesting in itself because it's from oprah and that signifies this book's enduring significance in america tony morrison's one of the biggest most important figures in modern literature but I think we don't fully appreciate her impact over here because she's so, so vital to them over there. Oprah says it's impossible to actually imagine the American literary landscape without Toni Morrison. She is our conscience. She is our seer. She is our truth teller. I love that. And the American scholar Valerie Babb says in The Guardian, she reshaped our literature, making it more reflective of the nation that generated it. Which is why it should be on more freaking English syllabuses. Kirkus Review, I saw, called it a quiet chronicle of garroted innocence, which is also very well put. That could be a line in the book, actually. I think it's on a lot of syllabuses in America. I think they study it loads over there, but I, I, it might be studied over here, but I haven't, I, you know, I haven't, neither of us have studied it. I haven't seen it on any syllabuses. I was thinking about how it had aged, and I do think if it was written now, there would be a lot of furore about the rape scene. I think there would be a lot of op-eds about it. And the thing is, is it's so vital because it's the only thing I've read where the writer doesn't so much defend or apologise for this crime. She does absolutely neither. But she lays out really sequentially the interconnecting thoughts that lead a man depraved and drunk to commit such an appalling crime she takes you very slowly and carefully from A to B. And it's horrifying, but it also felt so refreshing because you don't see it in literature. Either it's alluded to or it's apologised for, and she does neither. And she really lays bare how this was seen as the victim's fault. The adults say, Pekela carries some of the blame and how come she didn't fight him? And it reminded me that at the very tip of the iceberg and obviously nothing to do with racism, is, is Laura Danker in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, sending the boys crazy with her well-developed chest. She's blamed for things that she had no control over. Anyway, that scene with Pekla is brave and it's necessary, but I just don't think it would get written out. I just think writers would be really scared to write it. And I also really understand instantly why that would be so hard for so many people to read. What I do find interesting is how it's aged in terms of the age of the readership, because as it's about young girls and, and what they're going through, it often falls under the YA young adult category. You go on the UK Guardian review on their website, it's listed under children's books. This might be totally wrong, and do feel free to prove me wrong with, e- in, with an email at bookchatpod at gmail.com. But I feel like you don't get young adult books like this now. I mean, you, you do in the fact that you get a brilliant amount of racially diverse young adult books and books about race, and Toni Morrison very much paved the way for that. But in terms of that graphic sexual content, it feels like, like it would be deemed way too adult for, for kids to read now. I know. At first I was like, what? How is this a kid's book? But then I thought about the fact that I read Jilly Cooper, age 10. You know, why on earth should I read that and not this? Or George Orwell's Animal Farm, which I read age 12 and went entirely over my head. Or Lord of the Flies. Kel Surprise, all white authors I'm listing here. I don't think that 10, 11 or 12 is too young to learn about rape and racism. I still think that scene, I think there'll be a lot of column inches on it. I think it's really interesting looking at the context of of this book, which naturally is the exact same context of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, because while the latter book, the book, you know, the Judy Bloom book, feels like something that could have been written today, or at least in the 80s or 90s, it feels like that's maybe because that version of America, the white version of America, it, suburbia is safe. Things don't really change. Something that absolutely blew my mind is that there are only six years between Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and the end of segregation in 1964. Toni Morrison actually started writing The Bluest Eye before the Civil Rights Act was passed. So you, when you read this book, you have to put it in this context of, of just what a brutal existence it, it, it was, still was, being black in America. Very good context. Thank you for that. Would you have changed anything? I think it's kind of a moot point. I, it'd be like changing Shakespeare to give Romeo and Juliet a happy ending. I think 
I think when something is so influential and already so entrenched in the collective imagination, you can you can usually say this is this is probably exactly as it should be. Well, Tony Morrison pointed out something that could be changed. Peckler's rape being narrated by Cholly, as we said earlier, so it's seen through the male gaze. But she wrote afterwards that she does not handle effectively the silence at its centre, the voice that is Peckler's unbeing. It should have had a shape like the emptiness left by a boom or a cry. God, again, like, what a sentence. The voice, the shape of her unbeing. Um, I found it really powerful to know what went through Cholly's mind. I, I don't think you read that much, but I understand how to read her into the author herself. That felt like the wrong call. As we spoke earlier, it's that kind of wrangle between they are voiceless, should they have a voice, or should you show that they are voiceless by them not having a voice? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely the part of this book that would not fly if it was written now, is to not only have the rape from the rapist's point of view, but to kind of, in that context, justify the reasons behind it and give him sympathy. It did, it did kind of leave... It, I get I get it, but it, it did leave a bad taste in the mouth. And it's so interesting to hear hear Toni Morrison herself confront that head on. I think that's really, really admirable to do that with your own book. So you you saw that as her justifying or sympathising. That's so interesting. I saw it as like completely undecorative. I I kind of did because I think there is a there's a chapter where you are very much made to feel sympathetic for Charlie, and I think you ha- you know that these are two parts of the same book. So I found that you know you 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 couldn't really separate those two versions of Cholly and for that reason I, th- I think that's why it le- left a bad taste I wish I'd had more time to read all of the essays that I know would have been written on this subject to read how people have felt about it for the last 53 years because I'm sure there would be such an interesting journey with that I won't ask you if it's classic Tony Morrison because you've already outed yourself as a newbie and obviously I've only read Beloved and a very long time ago so I wouldn't be able to say it either. What I will ask is, will you be reading more of her? 100%, absolutely, definitely. And and there's one review I didn't mention earlier which I totally agree with which was from the Washington Post and said, discovering a writer like Tony Morrison is the rarest of pleasures. That is exactly how I feel. I, f- I felt when I was reading this a bit like when I first read Mose and Hamid and I had that really nice feeling of, oh my God, this is great. And this person has also written loads of other books that I now get to read. It is, it is like the best feeling. That's how I felt about Armistead Morpin. But yes, I agree. I absolutely renewedly felt that reading this. I really want to read Tar Baby and Paradise next. I have lots of catching up to do. <laughs> Thank you for listening. As ever, it means a lot to both of us and we absolutely love it when you email us your thoughts. So please do get in touch at bookchatpod at gmail.com. Our books for the next episode are Stoner by John Williams and The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. See you on the flip. Woohoo. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.